Beltry Bottas breaks his victory drought, but Lewis Hamilton is left to wonder what could have been after a botched tyre gamble loses him the championship lead. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and welcome to Round 16, the Turkish Grand Prix for Apex Race Manager, the mobile race simulator. Download it for free on iOS and Android. For one Mercedes, the drizzly Turkish Grand Prix was a cruise. Valtteri Bottas eased his way from pole to a comfortable 14-second victory ahead of Max Verstappen, banishing some of his wet-weather demons. But Lewis Hamilton, starting 11th with an engine penalty, laboured more substantially. Stuck first behind Yuki Tsunoda and then behind Sergio Perez, he was out of touch with the podium when he decided to roll the dice. When almost everyone else stopped for fresh intermediates by lap 40, he stayed out. He was hoping for a dry line and an easy switch to slicks, but when the sun refused to shine, he just had to hope his tyres would last the distance. And they seemed to be, for a bit. But then his lap times degraded as the rubber wore away and the temperatures dropped, and Mercedes had to fold on its hand and bring him in from third, dropping him to his finishing position of fifth and conceding the title lead. Were Hamilton and Mercedes right to gamble? To answer that question, I'm joined by renowned F1 stats man, Sean Kelly. Sean, welcome back to the Strategy Report. Thank you very much, sir. It's good to be back. And what a race we've got to choose from here in Turkey. Not the race I think we expected come or even Friday or Saturday. Uh, a race that was strangely similar in some respects, even to last year's most wacky Turkish Grand Prix. So I want to start with this track, this old Istanbul track, but still relatively newly resurfaced Istanbul track that played such a role in how strategy and tyre wear and the approach to this race played out. It seemed like this was going to be much different, the surface to last season. In the end, it was only by degrees that it was different. How different was the challenge that the teams approached this weekend? I think that the track was was markedly different in dry weather. Um, it did seem to carry a similar characteristics in, in the cool, wet conditions that we had in both races. Specifically, that the track just did not dry out anywhere near as fast as we are accustomed to seeing. Um, I, I don't know whether that's solely because of the relatively low ambient. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't freezing. Um, it was it was sixteen Celsius. It wasn't it wasn't terrible. Um, but it wasn't boiling either. Um, and yeah, it's important to remember that the last time we came to Turkey in its original run on the calendar was 2011. And that was Pirelli's first season as the control tire supplier. In that race, there were 81 pit stops, which at the time was an all-time F1 record. Sebastian Vettel won that race on a four-stop strategy, four-stop strategy. Um, and that was Pirelli's only previous experience of uh, this racetrack until last year. And of course, last year, the whole, whole race was won in, running in wet conditions on a very, very odd surface with tyres that were too hard, and um, or at least dry tyres that were too hard in practice. Um, and there was this horrendous, uh, ridiculous situation. If you've ever watched the FP1 session from last year where they were all just ice skating around on dry tyres, um, you know, 10 seconds off the, a good dry time. And then the track evolved by five seconds or whatever it was in FP2. And then there was no more um, dry running. So this year, Pirelli brought softer tyres, only to discover that the, the asphalt had cured. You know, it, it, had, it had bedded in, and, you know, all the oils had come out of it and everything. And it was a suddenly much, much grippier surface to the point where in FP1, we were already breaking the all-time track record. <laughs> um, so then it swung back the other way. So then suddenly the soft tyre, uh, which was the C4, I believe, uh, am I right there, C4? Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, was, um, was not preferable. Uh, no one in FP2 ran a long run on the C4. They all concentrated on C3 and C2. 
Uh, and then again, you get to Saturday, and it's a case of, uh, it might actually rain here. Um, and then you get into Sunday, and it, it is actually raining, which I have to confess, I wasn't expecting. I expected a dry race. Um, and then when it did rain, we had this again, this stagnant situation where it rained, and then it never dried. Uh, and it, it was a very peculiar situation. I mean, it's very unusual anywhere on the calendar to have a wet race from start to finish. To, let, to have that two years running <laughs> at the same racetrack is incredibly unusual. And normally when we have that happen, we have a huge big rainstorm and we might have a red flag. You know, you have to have serious wet weather for it to not dry up over the course of two hours. And yet we had, we had this. I saw someone on Twitter describe it as the driest wet race ever, which <laughs> I, think, I think is an excellent way of describing what we saw. It really was a dry race in the wet. Uh, it was a very strange afternoon. It was extremely unusual to have such a consistently baseline level of order. You're absolutely right. I couldn't even remember a, a similar similar circumstance. Uh, and it strikes me that this was, even up to that weather forecast or, or weather actuality on Sunday, a, a weekend of unexpectedness because, as you touched on there, Pirelli didn't forecast that the, the grip level was so improved and ended up bringing tyres that were too soft. And I can't help but wonder how much this would have impacted on teams' preparations because we got here and even the performance uh, outlook, let's say, of the field was a little bit unusual. I'm talking in particular about Red Bull and Mercedes here. It didn't seem like Mercedes took a massive step forward over the field, but did over Red Bull, or perhaps it's more correct to say Red Bull fell a little bit backwards. How much do you think that that pure unexpectedness of what what greeted the teams impacted on the fight we saw or ultimately didn't see at the front? I, I, honestly, I'd be taking a shot in the dark if I, <laughs> if I tried to speculate on that one, or I'd be either that or I'd be criminally underused. I should be working on the engineering side, <laughs> but it, it, it is noticeable that um, in normal conditions of late, Mercedes have taken taken back. The advantage. I don't want to take. I don't want to say they've stolen a march on Red Bull, but certainly, you know, the balance of power in terms of day-to-day running has shifted slightly back to Mercedes. We haven't had a Red Bull leader session. Uh, I think I'm right in saying since uh, Verstappen won at Zandvoort. Uh, every session, every session in Monza and Sochi was led by Mercedes, except for the race that was won by Ricardo and the pole that was won by Norris. Mm-hmm. So only Mercedes and McLaren, and they're Mercedes powered, of course. Um, and then uh, onwards in Turkey, you know, Mercedes obviously consolidated the, the advantage. You know, that um, Verstappen was not able to be on terms with them. Uh, so it, it's getting. We've just got this little mini run here where uh, Red Bull, uh, who have previously been the fastest team, check that actually, Verstappen has been the fastest <laughs> car. They haven't been the fastest team. Verstappen's been the fastest car. That has eroded slightly. Now, it might not all be doom and gloom because we are going to come to these two tracks coming up, in particular Mexico City and Interlagos, which are strongly pro-Red Bull racetracks, especially Mexico City, where Red Bull took their only front row lockout of the hybrid era back in 2018. Um, It has always been a very good Red Bull track. And, of course, um, all of Mexico will be hoping Sergio Perez wins that race in a Red Bull. It would definitely be his best chance of the year. Um, so I hesitate to draw a conclusion after the Portuguese Grand Prix this year, which was the third race of the season. I remember tweeting, uh, Hamilton had just won the second of the first three races. Verstappen had won the other one. And I said, okay, so today Verstappen, uh, Hamilton has won the battle, but it doesn't mean the war's over. This is going to go back and forth several more times. And we've seen the, the title, 
championship lead changed something like five times in the last eight races. So we could we could speculate and say, well, our Red Bull are solidly on the back foot. It's all going wrong for them. And then in Austin, they could absolutely batter them and we'll, be, we'll, we'll look like idiots. Uh, and, and that, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing because it means that we really don't know where this is going. And, and that's good for business because if, you, if we could fully predict it, it makes it very boring. Certainly in a 21, soon to be 23 race calendar, it's a very good thing to get to round uh, 16 and still have a very live championship fight. And we certainly hope it goes to the end of the year. I want to put uh, another question to you of one of the main focuses of this weekend and could indeed be a focus going forward. We don't know. Mercedes hopes it won't be. And that is the Mercedes engine. In particular, the Mercedes internal combustion engine, it seems. They took a penalty here, 10 places for Lewis Hamilton. That ended up being the focal point of this Grand Prix, how much he could recover from that. But as a sort of tie into that, Red Bulls put a lot of focus on the engine as well because they believe Mercedes has suddenly found a, a lot more power and they don't know how. Although there was a lot of sort of winking and nudging in various interviews from Christian Horner that it's something that maybe they don't think is completely above board. How much is this becoming now a battle, not just of engine performance, but that reliability factor I think is really interesting because we're going to talk about in a minute how it feels like there was certainly a degree of conservatism if you like in the way that the drivers in particular approach this race how much of it is going to come down to this engine battle whether performance or just reliability it's a good point and it it, it isn't something we've necessarily had to discuss in in recent years because uh, hamilton would usually have things out of sight by now or in the case of 2016 it would be the only person challenging him was his own teammate now we have a situation where there is reliability in play with grid penalties and, and so forth. It's important to note that Hamilton had not received a power unit penalty since uh, Interlagos 2017. It has been a long time since Hamilton had to take a 10-place penalty for power unit changes. He's had penalties because of uh, driving violations or because he changed the gearbox. Um, and that Interlagos penalty in 2017 was because he crashed in Q1. So the car was already damaged and he was already lapsed. So there was no penalty in taking all those uh, changes. I think, I think I remember off the top of my head, I think the last time he had one without that was Belgium 2016. It is a rare event for Mercedes to have to change things. And that really, really tips the balance in their favour. Having said that, Max Verstappen last season didn't have a grid penalty all year. Um, so, you know, Honda whose reputation was maligned by that experience at McLaren, which they would certainly love to forget. Um, Honda have been, uh, you know, they were equally impressive in the late races last year. But, of course, we had a lot less races last year. We made 17 Grand Prix last season. So with 22 on the agenda this year, we're moving into slightly uncharted territory um, because Honda had not been in a title battle for 30 years. And it will be interesting to see uh, if that influences things. It's easy to take a uh, take a back-of-the-grid penalty when you're not going for the title. You just think, let's just stock up and uh, get ready for you know the next race that we know we're going to be strong. Well, now you're thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Do we want to take a power unit penalty this race because we can't pass? These are all things that didn't enter the ether um, previously. So, uh, yeah, that's another variable that we have to we have to consider. We, we really haven't seen that in the, in the hybrid era where you've had two different 
power unit manufacturers going for the title. It certainly adds a new dimension to this fight. I want to talk about qualifying now and the battle for third in the Constructors' Championship because that is obviously not the headline event, but it is close again. At one point, we thought it looked like McLaren, after the Italian Grand Prix, for example, had stolen a bit of a march. Now only seven points, I think it is, or seven and a half. Those half points, very annoying uh, between them. Uh, And I want to talk about this in the context of qualifying. Carlos Sainz had a power unit penalty after Leclerc took one last round. He was going to start from the back. Entered qualifying anyway, purely to get in the way and then help his teammate get in the way of Daniel Ricciardo for one. Of course, Daniel Ricciardo had to set a lap time that would knock him out in Q1 to begin with, but Carlos Sainz assisted in that by making it through to Q2 and then slipstreamed Leclerc into Q3. This seemed very, uh, dare I use the word, for Ferrari, competent display strategically when sometimes they've been prone to some wackier strategic displays they ferrari historically have trended more towards the three stooges end of strategy <laughs> decisions it is fair to say um particularly with the qualifying stuff you know who could mm-hmm. forget the clerk being knocked out in q1 in monaco mm. in uh 20 what was that 2019 uh because they all thought oh that'll be fine we'll get into q2 <laughs> no problem <clears throat> wrong answer you're out um but yes, this was excellent, and I'm sure that they didn't send they didn't send science out in Q1 with the express notion of eliminating a McLaren. I'm sure they didn't expect that to happen. Mm. But once it was on the table, they thought, "Well, oh, hang on a minute, <laughs> this could be a very unexpected bonus for the constructors' championship." And so it proved. Um, and they also knew that science starting from the back on a track where he could pass, he, you know, he he was not going to be out of play in this race. You already saw Interlagos 2019. Science started dead last, 20th position, ended up on the podium after the Hamilton penalty when he hit uh, Alex Albon. So we knew Science had the ability to come back. He's had several instances this year where he hasn't made Q3, still scored points as the longest active point streak in Formula 1 right now. So they knew this was the, this was going to be the best race um, to take penalties if it was necessary. Um, and with Leclerc, well, Leclerc got remarkably close to pole position, um, unexpectedly close. I mean, that's the... It's only the third top three start he's had in two years. And the other two were pole positions, mm-hmm. Monaco and Azerbaijan. Um, but he, as I understand it, he was running full dry settings. So he was probably cursing that uh, Sunday dawned relatively damp. And we were probably hoping against hope that it would actually dry out. And then it never did. Much lower downforce, it seemed like, on that car. And we might talk about that run in the lead in a moment's time as well. Is there anything we can learn, though? It struck me as interesting. Last year, Ferrari had a real dog of a year. But were quite competitive here. They were on the podium with Sebastian Vettel and it could have been Charles Leclerc. Uh, and then this year, okay, they're not nearly as uncompetitive as last season, but they've had a, one of their stronger races in Turkey. And even though it was only really slippery, well, it was a bit slippery in qualifying, wasn't it? And then obviously more so in the wet in the race, seemed to perform quite well again. And on the flip side, this was one of those unusual struggle circuits for McLaren they seem to have from time to time. Is there anything we can learn from how that battle is unfolding in terms of how those two teams battled at this track? Well, I think the relative competitiveness of Ferrari in the two years at Istanbul are coincident as opposed to uh, a feature of Ferrari's ability in the damp at this racetrack. Neither car qualified in the top 10 in Istanbul last season. Um, By the way, (laughs) Istanbul last season is the only... Here's a a fun fact for you. It's the only race... We've had no Ferrari, no McLaren, and no Williams in the top 10 on the grid since South Africa 1967. That's a good one. <laughs> um, 
is the only, still the only one in the last 54 years. Um, but um, in that race, Vettel made a fantastic start from 11th on the grid. He was third at the end of the first lap, and that really set up a competitive afternoon for him. Um, and, and Leclerc went into play as well. Leclerc should have been on the podium. He messed up at the last corner. But um, that was that. With, with uh, Turkey this year, they qualified well in the drive with Leclerc. Um, and that meant Leclerc was in play from the start and probably hoping he had hoped he was going to dry out because he would have been even more competitive. Alas, not the case. And we knew, as I mentioned before, science has got previous when it comes to coming from the back of the grid and sorting himself out. And, you know, he's had plenty of practice in recovering from bad qualifying this year because <laughs> the car, the car is there this year. It's, 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 it's not a, it's not a world championship car, but it, it is a car that will, you know, it, it should be better than the McLaren, really. Um, I'm kind of mildly surprised that it's not. Uh, that they're not already comfortable third in the championship, but um, yeah, it, it's it's certainly a lot better. And no one seems to have mentioned this. We have financial regulations in play now. No one's talked about it, but we have this situation where if you finish lower in the constructors championship last year, you have more wind tunnel time than everybody else, mm. or, or than the than the front runners. Well, of course, Ferrari had their worst season since 1980 last season, um, and that um, has will have benefited them in terms of development and, and clawing back the disadvantage. Uh, you can see it also with Williams, who, of course, were in the basement last year. So they, get, they, they, they now have more um, tunnel time and development time than everybody else. And that you've seen a, a, a recovery in their pace this year. So Ferrari may have benefited from that as well. With that said, um, McLaren, I mean, it's been a long struggle to get back to where they were. They've basically recovered to where they were when they got rid of Mercedes. So they've got the Mercedes power unit back and they've ended up back where they were all along, which is, which is progress. Um, but, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, we shouldn't downplay that, of course, because there was no guarantee they would ever get back there. Mm-hmm. We've seen teams go on a downward spiral and it turned into a death spiral. They never, they never recovered. McLaren have at least done that. Uh, whether, whether they can hold off Ferrari in the remainder of the season, well, of course, it's easy to look at recent results and say, well, look, they've won a Grand Prix, they've been on pole. You know, well, you know, Ferrari have taken two poles this year, uh, earlier in the season, admittedly. But it, just because McLaren have had a little bit of a growth spurt lately doesn't mean that they will romp away with this third place in the championship, right? I would still consider the Ferrari to be the favourite, let's put it that way. Uh, if, if, McLaren, if McLaren get third ahead of Ferrari this year, they can be extremely pleased and feel like they it's a bit of a steal i, I don't i don't want to it sounds like I'm, I'm denigrating their performance level which i'm not it's more like ferrari should have had this and we stole it from under their noses by by not making mistakes you know by by in the races at least mm-hmm. uh, and, and maximizing our points totals and a little bit of luck you know the monza result needed a little bit of luck on their side but they were very competitive that weekend. The car is obviously very good uh, in low downforce trim, and that means that it should favour them again in places like uh, Mexico and Interlagos, where the, the Red Bulls are so competitive. It will be interesting to see, and an interesting call on third in the championship, the underrated battle of the year. But let's turn our attention now to the race. Again, the focus was on Lewis Hamilton starting from 11th, how quickly he could recover and where he could recover to. I thought it was interesting. Obviously, the start of this race, and we've mentioned this already, no one would have expected it to just be wet throughout. There were some expectations. They did vary before the race that it could be dry. You know, I guess in a no- on a more normal track, could be dry even by lap 10. If not, probably by about half distance, you would be thinking. And so we had this 
sort of, as I think you described it, as sort of a stasis of a first half of the Grand Prix, a bit of a stagnant first part of the race, except for Lewis Hamilton and Carlos Sainz, of course, but let's talk about Hamilton for now, really making up places, or at least he made up a couple off the line. Yuki Sonoda, he got caught behind for eight laps. Sonoda, very much Max Verstappen's third teammate for the weekend, I think you could call him the honorary Red Bull driver for that work. I guess maybe we didn't realise at the time how important that would be to what ultimately transpired. But those eight laps and then subsequently racing to catch up to the front runners who he dropped quite far behind, 12 seconds uh, or, or more or less behind the front runners because of being caught behind Sonoda. How important the usage of the tyres in particular were to what transpired in the end. Were these the laps that really made the strategic dilemma for the end of the race? Yes, I, I, that, that definitely undoubtedly came into play. And it, it's important here to mention that la- in last year's um, Turkish Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton never ran in the top four in the race in the first 32 laps of the race mm-hmm. and ended up winning by quite a significant margin. Yeah. And I was following his progress in this race. Uh, and again, we got to lap 32 and he was trying to pass Perez for fourth place. And on that particular lap in question, he was something like 20 seconds off of the lead. So even if he passed Perez and he would be up to fourth on the same lap that he was on up to fourth in that, uh, the 2020 race, he would have been actually 10 seconds further back compared to where he was in 2020. Mm-hmm. He would have been 10 seconds off the lead in that instance. He would have been 20 seconds off the lead this year. So, yes, the time lost trying to cut through the traffic was definitely, definitely ruled, you know, ruled him out of uh, a serious result by his standards. Um, and... It's when it comes to his uh, pace early on in the race. I mentioned it was stagnant. I've got actually my my handwritten um, lap times, which I, I I can show you here. If it, I know you can. I know it's a, I know it's a podcast. I'll show it to you. Um, but um, one of my things I do as a statistician in our race broadcast is log every lap by the front runners, so I can see the lap time progression on this set of tires and the gap progression. I, you know, I don't need to fiddle around the time it's going. It's like, okay, it's just written on this piece of paper. You can all see it. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you an idea of how, how the conditions just stayed static for so long in this race, Valtteri Bottas, on the second lap of the race, the first flying lap of the race, did a 134.3. On lap 29 of the race, he did a 133.6. That's only seven-tenths quicker mm-hmm. after 30 laps of the Grand Prix. The track has only improved by seven tenths of a second. Mm-hmm. Now, normally, in wet weather, I mean, you'd be, if, it, if it doesn't rain, you're on to dries before lap thirty. You know, you'd be twenty five seconds a lap faster. Instead, here we had this seven tenths of a second. So, yeah, it did create a stagnant first half of the race. And uh, Hamilton obviously found it difficult to pass Sonoda, and uh, it, it it set the tone. He didn't carve. He wasn't carving through people the way we might have expected in the past. That, to me, hints at the Mercedes advantage that we alluded to a little bit earlier, that they, you know, they've, they've topped all these sessions in the last three races. Their ultimate advantage is not as big as we are used to discussing with Mercedes. And they don't, they can't call upon this extra, um, well, almost what used to be called party mode. Um, <laughs> they, can't, they, can't just, they can't just decide, right, let's just whack everything up to 10 and we'll pass everybody in three laps. That probably isn't in them right now. Everybody else has, has eroded the gap. Um, and, yeah, that, that's what ultimately accounted for the fact that Hamilton ended up 10 seconds further behind, you know, one year on 
even though he was in the same relative position on the racetrack. You know, he was still getting, trying to battle for fourth place. By the time he got there, he was already another 10 seconds behind and really out of play when it comes to um, certainly Mercedes trying to put in any team orders, should we say. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, wouldn't have that have been interesting as well. Mm. There are a couple of things I want to pull out of that. Let's start with, uh, we, we mentioned Sonoda playing a, a good team game, even if it wasn't the same team that he was racing for. And of course, look, he was racing at the end of the day that is his job uh, but then he subsequently came up behind Sergio Perez and Perez put up a great defense one of the highlights of the race certainly seeing them go wheel to wheel uh, on lap 34 to 35 I think it was the end of the 34 and start of 35 uh, and then let's talk about the other side of the garage Valtteri Bottas I mean he didn't have to defend against Max Verstappen but he did everything he needed to in a situation in which Lewis Hamilton was not in a position to win he won the race he inherited pole he won the race didn't let Verstappen have a look in And it strikes me, over the course of the strategy report this year, I really expected to be talking more about how the second drivers were influencing strategy and and the championship battle for the leaders. And it has happened very occasionally, but not very often. And it strikes me that in this race, it was really, in terms of the championship, all about what the second drivers were doing in terms of either holding up Hamilton or ensuring Verstappen could not win this race. Are you surprised how... Uh, no, I wouldn't necessarily say how far off the championship pace Bottas and Perez were, because I guess we shouldn't have expected them to be quite as close to the leaders, but how little they seem to have really played a role in, in the, the overall team game this year. And should we expect more of it this year? Yeah, I think it's um, it, it's, a, it's an element of this year's championship. It's not really been talked about that much, the, the, the relative uncompetitiveness of, of mm-hmm. the number two drivers. And you are right. I mean, Bottas' win averted another winless season. He, he would have. He didn't want to leave Mercedes having failed to yeah. win Grand Prix in two different seasons at Mercedes, which just sounds unfathomable. Mm-hmm. Um, so thankfully, he had averted that. Um, but it has been a relatively uncompetitive time for Bottas. And I, and I, I again, I, I almost I sound like I'm repeating what I just said, but it, it speaks to the relative lack of superiority of the Mercedes this season. And I think. Where you see the difference between Hamilton and Bottas is when the car is the, clearly the best car on the grid, they, they, they both look very, very close. You know, Bottas is mm-hmm. 99% of Lewis Hamilton. But when the car is not, does not have that ultimate advantage and it is really in a, in a dogfight to get on top, that's when the gap opens because then the cars start to, you know, other cars start to get in between the two of them. So even though Bottas might be a, a tenth or two off, suddenly this, you know, he's fourth where, where previously he was second. Um, so I think I think that influences things. I think it's disappointing that Perez has not been as quick as I might have hoped, or certainly might have hoped, or would have hoped. <laughs> but as as I've said several times with Albon and with Gasly, there is clearly an institutional problem with that second Red Bull. You cannot look at Perez uh, and his entire record in F one and say, well, he clearly doesn't know what he's doing. You could have you could have reached that conclusion with Gasly that maybe he had stars in his eyes being promoted to a Red Bull, um, and also with Albon, it was like, well, it was a mid-season promotion, you know, blah blah blah. You could, you could come up with all these excuses, but we don't have those excuses with Perez. And Verstappen is out there winning races now. I know Perez did win a race in Baku, um, but he hasn't he hasn't taken a pole position and won from the front. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we can only conclude that the problem is institutional there. It's I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not saying that Red Bull are deliberately, <laughs> you know, hobbling their second car. I think that's nonsense. But they, more, you know, more than anybody, would be fascinated to understand why can we not make both cars this quick? Like, I understand why, 
if you see in qualifying, Botas sometimes has the edge on Hamilton over one lap. Uh, and, and when he doesn't, there's been several instances over the course of their time together where Botas has just missed taking pole off Hamilton by, you know, eight thousandths of a second or you know, two hundredths. And then you get Perez, who several times a season has been eight tenths off Verstappen in qualifying. You think, well, hang on a minute. I mean, we know we know he's a good driver. He's not eight tenths of a second slower over one lap. That can't be right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that yeah, that that's a problem that it's so frustrating because if you think well, Verstappen looks great. If Perez was up there as well, we wouldn't have a championship to be talking about because <laughs> Hamilton Hamilton would be a long way behind. Because Perez would have spoiled it for him, but you know you could have had Red Bull one twos here and there, and you know instead of Hamilton being however many points, you know that they've barely been separated by more than eight points for about two months now, he'd be fifty-eight points adrift. So mm-hmm. it, it's the lack of the number two driver is certainly affecting Verstappen more than it's affecting Hamilton. Um, and we saw, you know, Botas given a clear track to deal with on Sunday, just made it all look very, very clinical. Like, yeah, I'll just go around for 58 laps and see you on the podium. Um, <laughs> and it should be said, I mean, I, I've often been tough on Botas down the years and said, he's not good enough. He's not good enough to win the championship. When I stand, and I stand by that, but he's a hell of a pickup at Alfa Romeo. Oh, wow. To get it, to, you get someone, because he's, Botas is really good. He's not Hamilton good, but he is very, very good. And for Alfa to get him straight out of Mercedes with all that knowledge, this big, big pickup for Alpha next season. It is going to be really interesting next season. That and also to see whether Perez can get closer in a car that is kind of like a clean slate. I do wonder how much that car has just been, it's so many rotating drivers just moving towards that Verstappen driving style. And he, he likes a very aggressive car. And that will be really interesting to see. The other aspect I wanted to pick up on that, though, on the, I guess, the number two angle, the flip side of that is that it struck me that, okay, Hamilton was aiming for a very racy Grand Prix, clearly, to pick up places. But there was a point in the battle with, with Sonoda, I think it was lap four, when he looked for a move, he had the inside, and then sort of backed out, decided it wasn't, he wasn't going to be able to seal the deal without too much risk. Uh, similarly to Perez, I mean, Perez did just put up a great defense, but couldn't seal the deal there either. Sometimes we would have seen him in the heat of battle really try to close the door uh, and, and try and force the other driver to back out. Didn't see that this weekend. Verstappen obviously didn't have the pace to win and very early on in this race conceded he was going to settle for second place. That was going to be his Grand Prix. There was nothing in strategy that he tried. There was nothing really he could do anyway. But it struck me as a very conservative race and I wonder how much that is now going to be a, a role in future races as well in terms of the championship and how... Considering how costly they've talked about a DNF would be ahead of this race, particularly in the context of unreliability, are we now going to see this being, I don't know, like a, a conservative race where no one needs to win but only not lose to try and grind out the title? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that factors into the the Hamilton pit call, mm-hmm. of course, because Mercedes are cognizant of the fact that well, look, if we leave him out and he blows a tire, that's zero points. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's trade away a couple of points, live to fight another day. You know, okay, so we're six points off the lead or whatever, wherever we end up. It's better than being 26 points off the lead. Um, so yeah, it, it, it already is influencing things. Um, you know, if Hamilton, if Hamilton had been, let's, let's substitute him. You know, let's, let's say it, it had been the Ocon situation in Hungary. Do we pit Ocon now or do we leave him out? Oh, hell yeah, we're leaving him out. <laughs> we, we've got enough sixth places, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely staying out and going to try and win this thing. Um, 
but with a Mercedes, it's a different deal. It's, I mean, Mercedes, I've, I've had this conversation with Mercedes down the years, and they've always preached the mantra of risk minimization, mm. which, which is a boring concept, <laughs> and you can't sell it. From an entertainment standpoint, you can't sell it. Right? So basically, you're just trying to take the lowest possible risk. But if you look at their results in the last 10 years, it's kind of difficult to argue with them. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it will continue to influence matters. And I'm sure the, the, the two drivers will continue to be gung-ho and they will have to be reined in by their own engineers. <laughs> um, and we've already seen them collide with each other twice, so that's not gone very well. <laughs> um, but, yes, that, that will come into play where it's a case of uh, what's, what's the least damaging thing we could do. they'll be waiting for the other side to make Mm -hmm. the mistake is what it's going to be it's going to be like tennis when you watch a rally in tennis you know they're just going to hit the ball back and forth and wait for the other guy to make the mistake Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah that's that's how it'll be but of course we'll get to if we get to Abu Dhabi and there's only a couple of points in it (laughs) then that's gunfight at the OK Corral (laughs) then you know (laughs) can you imagine these two going into the last race of the season with a couple of points between them have to race each other on the racetrack to win the title. I mean, it's the stuff of Formula One dreams, really. Considering the, the seasons we've had, it's going to be right. very exciting. With a new and improved Yas Marina, where you can actually <laughs> pass for the first time ever. Certainly, we hope. Certainly, we hope. Yeah, absolutely. And good right. luck to side note. Good luck to uh, Yas Marina for listening to listening to popular opinion and deciding. Yeah, you know what? This does suck. Let's change it, and make it way better. <laughs> Because I've been, I've, you know, I've always, I've always said the track is truly awful. But Yas Marina, and anyone who's been to Yas Marina will, will tell you, it is an astonishing venue mm-hmm. to go to. Absolutely mind blowing, and it, it doesn't really come across on television because mm-hmm. you have to be there in amongst the lights and the way the whole the whole venue turns into a nightclub at night. It's a, it's amazing. <laughs> all the all the yachts have all got like laser beams coming off them all across. <laughs> it. It's it's an incredible place to go, and then the race absolutely blows every year. <laughs> so. I'm really glad they've changed it because if we get a title decider like that, mm. then everyone would go, wow, do you remember Yas Marina 2021? <laughs> what, what a weekend that was. I do hope. I do hope we will be able to say that. Of course I do. Let's talk about that critical decision. The last, let's call it 20 laps for Lewis Hamilton, decided to stay out when everyone else had pitted, almost everyone else had pitted by lap 40. Uh, it was him and Charles Leclerc, and we'll talk about Esteban Ocon as well. They were the ones who were trying to get to the end of the race without stopping. We'll put Ocon to, to one side for a second. It, it became clear at some point Mercedes were going to have to fundamentally commit to this strategy of staying out. And by commit, I mean not be able to ga- commit to not gaining places at the end of the race, to, to try and lock in third. And then we got to that point of no return where they saw that fifth was a nice... Uh, let's say base point where they could pit and keep fifth, stay out, maybe have fifth, or as you said, maybe not score points at all. At what point was it essentially locked in for them? Was it around about lap 40 odd? Could they have got more out of this race had even after that, let's say, mainstream pit window had closed, they pitted, perhaps used a, a tire advantage at the end of the race? At what point was this fifth or bust for them fundamentally? Um, I'd be lying if I could tell you off the top of my head. I, I forget exactly where that crossover took place. Mm-hmm. But I do know where the confusion came from. And it came from last year's race. Mm-hmm. Because in last year's Grand Prix, of course, Lance Stroll took a brilliant pole position and then, and then proceeded to brilliantly lead the first 32-odd laps of the race. And then at which point Racing Point brought him in and said, let's pit for new intermediates. He then did that, dropped down to ninth place and stayed there. 
And it was he was it's from the moment he took new intermediates he was and total uh, totally out of play, not not an influence in the rest of the race. And those who stayed out were the guys who picked up the trophies. Mm-hmm. So I think Hamilton in last year's race pitted on lap eight and ran to the end. I think I might be, my memory serves me right. Mm-hmm. So in the position that Lewis was in, knowing like this is exactly the same race as last year, same conditions, why are we pitting? We learned last year our main rival pitted, took new intermediates, and then we never saw him again, and mm-hmm. I won the race. Why on earth are we doing that? So I totally understand why Lewis was arguing with the team about it. We're already in, we're in play as it is, because we don't need to pit, we'll be fine. And I must confess, I, I was on his side. I thought, I, I feel like the team is trusting the algorithm too much. Like they're not looking up from their laptop and seeing what's happening actually on the track because, you know, computers telling them this. So we've got to do this. Um, and the driver saying, no, 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 we don't need to do that. Alas, it turns out that the computer was probably right in the end because, you know, Ocon stayed out to the end. And by the end, his tires were just hanging on for dear life. He mm-hmm. was in big trouble. Um, you know, they were, they were worn down to the cords. You know, there's a, a big, huge delamination on one of the tires. Got to the end without pitting and made himself an answer to a trivia question in his own right by <laughs> doing an entire race without pitting, uh, which uh, that hadn't happened. That hadn't happened since 1993, where a driver had done the entire race mm-hmm. on a single set of tires um, without uh, any pit stop or anything like that, barring, of course, 05, where we couldn't change tires. Mm-hmm. Um, What's my train of thought? Yes. So Lewis, <laughs> go back to there. Lewis. That's where I was. Sorry, I go off on these statistical tangents. Um, so I, I understand why Lewis didn't want to pin, and I understand also that in in Russia it was the same thing when he was chasing Norris. Yeah. He said, "Look, you know, he literally said in the post race interview, you know, he's right there. I, why do I need to pit? He's right in front of me. I've got him." Um, it's very difficult to talk the driver off the ledge, you know, mm-hmm. when you can see the big prize in front of you. Now, admittedly, he wasn't going to win the race uh, in this instance, but with the title on the line, you're thinking, mm, do I want to take tyres, risk a bad stop? You know, maybe, what, if we come out in ninth place or tenth place, or, and then I've got these new intermediates, which we know from last year, don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out this year they did do something. So, you know, things have changed ever so slightly. So, yeah, in this instance, the, the computer was right, but it, it presented a fascinating... Um, Sort of social experiments, you know, uh, psychological experiment of uh, algorithm versus using the force. You know, Hamilton <laughs> said, "Based on my experience, we should stay out," and the and the algorithm says, "Based on our calculations, you should come in." Mm-hmm. And it, and this in this instance, the calculations just won out. Um, but yeah, I, I would have I would have left Lewis out. I would have left Lewis out. I would have been in agreement with him, and I would have been wrong. So <laughs> it is important to state. That I, I'm not being wise after the fact. I would have been in Lewis's camp, and I would have been completely wrong. So the the, the biggest mistake was they didn't bring him in a little bit earlier, and of course that because mm-hmm. and that and this this argument came about, and that's what caused the delay. So once bitten, twice shy. But I do think it, there is also another thing that Lewis uh, tweeted about or posted an Instagram post the next day about how everyone was making a big hullabaloo about him arguing with the team and said, "I told you so." Blah 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 blah. I think it's very unfair that they're, some of the media, some of the more bombastic media, are trying to make <laughs> out there's some sort of massive feud rift. Because in the heat of the moment there, we all say things in our work which is not exactly pleasant to each other because we're under high, it's a high-stress situation and we're not, it's not how do you do, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's just one of those instances because now we can hear the radio. It sounds like the, it sounds like he's, um, really, really trashing the team in public when, of course, it's actually just a conversation with his engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was good that Lewis sort of got on, got on that quick and said, no, 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 no. It, just, these things just happen. We win as a team, we lose as a team. It's just one of those instances. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about it afterwards. I realized, you know, I was probably wrong. Sorry about that, guys. Yes. Onwards. It was interesting to hear in post-race coverage as well that his, his commentary in terms of whether or not he thinks he could have made it, not his criticism of the team, was moderated the more he saw photos and images of the tyres afterwards. His tyres, Ocon's tyres, which originally he thought was a sign that he could have made it, then saw the tyres. And anyone who saw Ocon's tyres, there are photos online. Yeah. Uh, knows, and he finished a lap down Ocon as well, so he completed one fewer lap than Hamilton would have had to. Uh, and even Pirelli said that at one point they were, they were considering warning teams not to do it because it was too dangerous. So I think very much one stop was a, a much bigger risk than it probably seemed at around about lap 40 when it seemed like the, the risk was more worth taking, a more balanced gamble. Right. The communication I do want to talk about uh, as well, uh, not just in terms of, of what Hamilton was communicating like before he eventually pitted on lap 50, as we said, which meant he didn't really have time to maximise the, the pace of new tyres because they go through a graining phase when the track is dry like that. I want to talk about Charles Leclerc because he was, in a sense, the early warning sign for Mercedes as well. What happened to Leclerc happened only a couple of laps later to Lewis Hamilton uh, and they knew to bring him in to avoid the worst uh, of, let's say, the lockups. Leclerc was saying. Leclerc was in the lead at one point because he hadn't stopped and he was clearly actively considering not stopping from the cockpit, probably the most vocally actively considering not stopping from the cockpit. Uh, we touched on earlier how Ferrari did seem to play quite a good hand, certainly in qualifying. In the race, it wasn't as slick. Carlos Sainz, for example, in his recovery, probably lost a place through a slow pit stop and we think that that's probably because of these pit stop rules that have changed recently, we've talked about on previous episodes. But I thought it was interesting to hear the discussion between Leclerc and his engineer about losing places or not uh, in terms of staying in the lead, what his ultimate position, finishing position would be. I thought it was very funny when he asked that question. They said, well, if you keep Bottas behind, you'll win, when that clearly wasn't really the question that was being asked. That, to me, still seems like the percentage game for Ferrari to improve if they're to return to being... Well, regular winners, let's say. Well, I think that conversation with uh, vis-a-vis Botas, um, I, I think that at that point, Ferrari were sort of umming and ahhing, weren't they, mm-hmm. in terms of, should we leave him out? I mean, you know what happened last year? I mean, we just had that conversation with the Mercedes side. Mm-hmm. Like, if we leave him out here, we could win this. Mm-hmm. There was definitely a five-minute period, I remember, during the race, where I thought, I think Leclerc's going to win this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as Botas caught him, you realise, nah, no, <laughs> so, <laughs> is going to get him easily here. Uh, there's nothing you can do about this. Um, but there was definitely a five. There was a couple of laps in there. I thought, I think Leclerc might have this, and we, he might they might steal this from, from under everybody else's nose. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an interesting radio transmission, which no one mentioned after. I, I heard it early in the race. Uh, it was from Will Joseph to uh, Lando Norris who's talking about the possibility of a pit stop for Inters. And Lando had said, mm, I, don't, I, I don't think we should because I, I, don't, I feel like the graining phase on this, if we get a new Inter, we're going to have a massive graining phase and it's going to cost us too much time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, wow, that was... And it was early in the race as well. Um, uh, so clearly they all knew it was coming. You know, the fact that Norris was discussing it casually in mid, mid-corner, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 20 laps in. They all knew that was coming, um, but uh, I forgot. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the question. What was it next? <laughs> Gone off on another tangent. 
Ferrari, uh, it, it, there was definitely a point where I, again, another another classic example of do we believe the data or do we just let him get on with it? I mean, we do have the track position right now. Let's just leave him out and see what happens here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I totally understand to, to pick from a winning position. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. Because and, and the thing is, for Ferrari, there's nothing to lose. I mean, who gives a crap if they finish fourth? Mm-hmm. You know, no one cares. Um, they don't care. But but it's like, wow, good. You know, we could end up stealing a win out of this, and we haven't had a win mm-hmm. in two years. It's it's time. You know, let's give it a go. And then and then of course, Boat is coming a lot like Jaws behind him. <laughs> and then and then of course, as soon as he dispatched Leclerc, it's just like forget it. It's just, you know, he's, 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 we're not we're not going to sustain this. So let's just let's just cut our losses and get in here. Yeah. And it was the loss of lap time that knew they had to pit and effectively ended up where they may have ended up had the lap times uh, stayed slow, but the tyre not popped. Fundamentally, the same equation for Hamilton as well. He was probably on board for fifth had the tyre survived and not stopped, so may as well bank fifth. Only just ahead of Pierre Gasly. That's how the battle at the lead panned out. Bottas, Verstappen, Perez Leclerc, and then Lewis Hamilton. It's been a really interesting race to talk to you about, Sean, but before I let you go, the question I get to ask everyone at the end of this podcast, because the championship is so close and we're so close to the end, it's a very easy one. What do you think is going to happen when we tally up the points in Abu Dhabi? Um, I said it was easy, but it turns out it's not, huh? No. (laughs) Honestly, these two are so evenly matched that it, it, it could be a title that's just decided by... The prevailing wind one day, like it, it, it could actually be that literally. It could be like one of them spins because there's a gust of wind, mm-hmm. on a, like in qualifying or something like that. It could be something as small as that, or a fumbled pit stop, or you know, oh, going into turn one, you know, I, I damaged the end plate of front wing against this guy, and I could, ne- I couldn't, couldn't race everybody. Mm-hmm. It, something as small as that could decide this championship, and that makes it fantastic because every, you know, e- every decision counts right now. It is there is no there is no wiggle room in all these previous championships that Hamilton's won with Mercedes. There's always been that little bit of wiggle room, knowing that um, if 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 we're not at a hundred percent, you know, ninety ninety five percent of our ultimate performance is still good enough to win. And now it isn't. Now he can give a hundred percent and still finish second mm-hmm. with another guy in front of him, even if he gives maximum. And that changes the paradigm completely. Um, and of course, for Max, he's never been in a title battle before, uh, and uh, you know Red Bull are a little bit out of practice in this department too. It there's there's too many variables. I can't I can't tell you with any authority one or the other will win the title. It is simply it could literally come down to Abu Dhabi where ah oh, you know they get one get stuck by a back marker in qualifying, you know. They end up fourth on the grid instead of first on the grid, and you know then the the other guy gets ahead of him enough that he can hold him off in the last five laps, even though the other guy's on new tires. And yeah, anything can happen, and that's that's what makes it brilliant: is that somebody who sits here all day and makes a career out of analysing all of this data and producing a conclusion can still say too close to call. I'm afraid. Come back, come back in a couple of months' time, and I might have more for you. But right now too close to call it is a beautiful thing what a season we are enjoying sean an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast once again thanks very much i look forward to coming back again and hopefully resolving that question around Abu Dhabi. <laughs> it's hard to know what we'll make of this race when the points are tallied in abu dhabi 
Will Hamilton be happy to have banked the 10 points or dismayed not to have reached for 15? But with only six points between him and Verstappen with six races to go, this is just one of so many similar questions that'll demand an answer in December. Thanks very much to Sean Kelly for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race strategy simulator. Download Apex Race Manager for free on iOS and Android devices. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report with Google, Apple, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app to ensure you never miss an episode. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Aminato, and I'll catch you next week for a preview of the United States Grand Prix.